In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The basis for my homily this morning comes from the gospel lesson previously read, specifically Jesus' response to the Sadducees' question, whose wife will she be? And I gotta say, it seems like a reasonable question. Does it to anybody else? Wait, set aside for a minute dramatic irony. Set aside that you know the sarcasm and cynicism with which the Sadducees are approaching Jesus. And set aside for now that you know they disbelieve in the resurrection. They're just trying to set Jesus up. Rather, look at this question objectively. You have the law clearly given by Moses in Deuteronomy 25, which goes something like this. If a man dies without a male child, his brother is required by law to marry his sister-in-law. Weird. And the first male child that they have is actually not the brothers, but the first guy's, the dead guy's son so that his name will not be blotted out from the land of Israel. Namesake is very important for reasons not the least of which include perpetuating the messianic line. To corroborate this, we have this weird and somewhat erotic story from Genesis 38, where Judah's son Ur dies. So Judah tells Ur's brother, Onan, go and fulfill your brotherly obligation and marry Tamar, Ur's widow. So Onan does, except he knows that any male children that that they have together will not be his. And so when they are intimate, he (coughs) spills his seed on the ground. And what he does is, of course, evil in God's sight, and God kills him. Pretty serious. Of course, Ur died in the first place because he was evil and God killed him, so I don't really know what the big deal with Onan was. But the story still stands. Oh, and let's make it even more complicated. Let's have Judah be the one to inadvertently impregnate his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because she was pretending to be a prostitute. (laughs) Whose wife is she? Call me crazy, but I think it's a reasonable question. It sounds like a Maury Povich episode. So when the Sadducees come to Jesus with this wild story about a woman and seven husbands, everybody's dying, I don't think it's all that ludicrous. God probably killed all seven of them anyway. (laughs) We can come up with far more ludicrous questions about the resurrection, about marriage, about human relationships in general in the new creation, and Scripture doesn't give us a whole lot. And so this passage from Luke 20 tends to be a sort of doctrine seat for marriage in the new creation, or as I like to call it, that passage that makes married women cry. And if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't made this mistake yet, let me save your wife from it. If she is cuddling tenderly in the crook of your arm and you are sharing the peace of each other's company, and she begins to muse on what a joy it will be to share in the bliss of the new creation with you, her bridegroom, and Jesus, her Lord. Don't respond with, well, honey, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they are like the angels. (laughs) Be that as it may. We cannot just blow off the questions and reasonable concerns people have about marriage and human relationships in the new creation, but rather draw them toward the real object of their faith, their heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So let's see how he does this with the Sadducees. 
You notice he doesn't just blow them off like we might be willing to do. Ah, oh, Sadducees, you don't even believe in the resurrection. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Let, let Jesus go. Just keep going to Jerusalem, Sadducees. No, he actually treats it like it's a reasonable question. He accommodates himself to the limited belief system and the cynicism of the Sadducees. And he uses the Pentateuch, which they do believe in, to answer the question. Only answering the question isn't enough for Jesus. So he answers the question by challenging them and undercutting the very presuppositions they're standing on. Marriage, for the propagation of a family line so that their name is not blotted out from the land, is unnecessary in a land where people do not die. And you might ask yourself, Mr. Said, you see what the original purpose of the family line was for. For a people whose God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. For Eve that the serpent's head may be crushed. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes, even Judah and Perez and so on and so on, to carry the message and promise of salvation from line to line to line to line to finally get to the Messiah himself standing before you answering your so-called reasonable questions. But better yet, Mr. Said, you see, this Messiah is not content with simply answering a difficult exegetical question. Nor is he simply another link in the chain to make sure that Israel is not blotted out from the land. No, this is Israel mystically united with the Godhead for the salvation of the world. This is the one who testified to Moses. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God not of the dead, but the God of the living, and he will prove it to you. He has set his face toward Jerusalem where he is going to be beaten and bloodied and battered by the very children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's unbroken messianic line. This God of the living is so intent on being the God of the living and not the God of the dead that he takes the cause of all death onto himself. And there, held to a cross in Jerusalem by the sins of the whole world, the God of the living becomes the God who dies. What's marriage for in this age, anyway? to be fruitful and multiply? Okay, we see how that got to Jesus. But before that, what was it for? It was because it was not good for man to be alone. So God made for him a bride. And since man was made as the image of God in creation, it might be safe to say that it was not good for God in creation to be alone. Now, I know the congregation to whom I'm speaking, so before you start a blog about it, let me just say that I am in no way suggesting that God is incomplete somehow without us or that he needs us in any way. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying he wants us. And so he makes us his bride. But this God of the living does not want a dead bride. He wants a bride that he died for, that he rose for, that he joins to his own death and resurrection through baptism. He has too heard our cries for mercy and has come to our rescue as our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. 
And someday, someday soon, bride of Christ, we will live in a land flowing with milk and honey, wearing bridal gowns of white washed in the blood of the Lamb, forever singing praises not to the God of the dead, but to the God of the living. We have many reasonable questions concerning marriage, human relationships in general, and the new creation. But when you encounter these questions, imagine yourself as Mr. Sadducee. Jesus has accommodated himself to our limited knowledge of his economy, of his salvation story, by giving us marriage as a reflection of it. And he uses this reflection to pull us toward the real object of our faith, himself. So will there be marriage in the new creation? Will there be procreation? Will there be sex? I don't know. But I do know this. We will live in a land where people do not die because our God is not a God of the dead but a God of the living. Come quickly, dear bridegroom, for we much desire to see you. Amen.